Good morning, church. <laughs> um, so I will be reading from two passages from the Bible. The first one will be from Leviticus ver- uh, chapter 4, verse 5 to 7. And then the second one will be from Hebrews 9, verses 12 to 14. And in Leviticus it says, Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting. He is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. The priest then shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And Hebrews 9 says, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctified them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Thank you. Thank you, Dawn, very much. Man, what a reading. All that blood, Dawn. What's the deal? It's the first time she read. That's what she wanted to read. Can you believe it? All right. We're week number four in this series called The Inescapable Story. And today, here's the thing. Title the message, The Heart of the Story. Here's why this is an issue, everybody. This is the very heart of the story. And the heart of the story is what many people uh, have problems with, have confusion about, have misunderstanding, including me. Uh, The heart of the story actually probably causes me the most confusion. And the problem is, it's the heart. It's the very heart of it. So this is what we're going to talk about this morning. As you noticed, there's a lot of blood in that read, both of them actually. The Hebrews and the Leviticus one kind of just go right together. And why all the blood? I'm not, just so you know, I'm not a blood person. If you're bleeding, you probably don't want to come to me for medical help because I'm going to pass out and you're going to bleed to death, right? So not, it's not going to be a good thing. The the, the other thing, I just think about this, blood in Jesus' suffering, why does he have to suffer? And if he loves us so much, can he just say, ah, let's just wave it off. Come on in. I love you. Everything's okay. It's all right. That's how much I love you. Let's just wave it off. Whatever the infractions were, whatever the debt is, cancel the debts. I love you. I have a great love you. This is an issue. This is where we're headed. We're headed to the heart of the story. The story, as we've been saying, is really only, the Bible's only telling one story. It's not telling 10, 15, 20. It's not like all these wonderful moral vignettes about things that we should do. Every story is telling us one story, and all the stories are coming together so that we just get this. And that's actually what the book of Leviticus is about. It's about this one story and how we can re-enter into the presence of God. So the Hebrews passage that Dawn just read mentioned the word conscience. I want to unpack that momentarily. The word conscience. Actually, the book of Hebrews, you find the word conscience in Hebrews more than any other book in the Bible. Conscience. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's what it means when that word was used all those years ago. It means that somebody feels 
unfit to be in somebody else's presence. In other words, here it is. If you knew who I really was, you wouldn't love me. I'd be unworthy in your eyes if you just knew what I thought about or what I did or the person I really am. I try to, you know, I put on a good front to you. But if you knew who I really was, that's what a conscience is. You would reject me. You wouldn't love me. Shame. Shame and conscience inextricably are just bound together here. Because shame is, shame is when you feel an intense pain because you feel like you're unloved or you don't belong. In other words, what we've been talking about is being out of God's presence. And this is the big problem because the soul says throughout scriptures, I want to be in your presence, God. I long for your presence. That's when it's right. That money can't do it. We've talked about in this series, right? Mick Jagger, I got all the money, fame for, I got it all, and I can't get no satisfaction in what the soul longs for more than anything else. And all the data backs this up. What the soul longs for more than anything else is to be in God's presence. It's the number one reason why people go to church. If it's a churchgoer, they say, number one reason I'm going to church, I want to encounter God. If it's a non-churchgoer, they say, you know what, I don't go to church, but if I go to church, here's the reason I'd go, because I want to encounter God. And it's, that story is coming out. I want to be in God's, that's where my soul feels watered, nourished, alive, thriving, when in God's presence. But now we got the blood. What is the blood and the suffering and the pain and Jesus on the cross? What does that have to do with all of this? Why blood? In Leviticus chapter 4, Dawn read us just a few verses. Do you realize that the word blood is used about a dozen times in that one chapter alone? A dozen. That is a lot of blood. And if you read that chapter, what you'll read about is this. The blood is being sprinkled, splashed, dipped, poured, wiped, smeared. I mean, my goodness, I almost passed out just reading the chapter. (laughs) Do we have to do all of these things? The Bible is a bloody book and everybody right there. And I fully understand this. I just want you to know where I'm coming from. I fully understand what I'm getting ready to say. Many modern people have a problem with the Bible right there. Bloody book. Look, we live in a world filled with violence and bloodshed. The last thing we need is a religion of bloodshed. How does this make sense? Can't we just have peace? Why can't we just have love? Can we all just get along? Why the blood? Why is this necessary? Very confusing, and the Bible is a very bloody book. And then we sing, if some of you grew up in church, when I say grew up in church, I'm thinking like 30 plus years back, okay? Right? We sing, there's power in the blood. It's power. We had a group come and sing here many years ago uh, before they were fabulously popular. They would never come now because they're just too big for us. They're huge. They're very, very famous. And uh, they actually came twice. And the second time they came, I wasn't there the first time. The second time they came, I wanted to get together with the lead singer. And I just said, hey, look, I just want to, you know, this is a church. Almost half of the church are non-church, self-classified non-church goers. So if you would classify yourself as non-church goer this morning, it's your first time here, like, oh man, all these people are bought in here. What you need to know is almost 50% of the people in this room self-classify as a non-church goer. And so I just tried to share with them. I said, watch, just, just watch your language. I don't mean don't cuss. I was saying, don't use all those Christian concepts, words and stuff like that. He's, he kind of gave me that look. I said, all right, I just, you know, be careful. He says, hey, I've been here before. I said, okay, all right. So he's out, he's singing, he's getting towards the end of his, right, set. And I could see it. Man, it was like this glow came across his face. He went down on his knees. I won't do that, I have a bad back. He went down on his knees and he looks up and he points up and he says, I want to kneel at the foot of the cross and let the blood of Jesus Christ just pour down all over me. 
I'm sitting there on the front and I said, that's it. That's the phrase I'm talking about. As he said, that's what I'm talking about. I don't even like it. That, that imagery is problematic for me. Blood just streaming down. And I'm, I'm just out. Right? It's no good. It's not working. It's power. It's power in the blood. Do you realize that the word blood occurs more than 400 times in the Bible? Do you know how many times you find the word blood in Bram Stoker's Dracula? 121 times. Right? So four times more in the Bible than in a book about blood by Dracula. This is a very, very bloody book. Now, just not the Bible, everybody. Because our world, our culture, has lots of familiar little quips and phrases that have to do with blood, doesn't it? Okay, I'm going to run some by you. Tell me if they make sense. Flesh and blood. They're blood brothers. There's bad blood between them. That person is a blue, yes, blue blood. And when somebody's mad, they are out for, or it's in cold. Yes, man, you guys are good. That person is too rich for my, and blood is thicker than, oh, man, it's just awesome. Leviticus 17. Let's just go right to the heart. This is, this is why, why blood? Why, well, Leviticus 17 kind of pulls it all together for us, helps us to understand this thing. For the life of the body is in its blood. For the li- so, so, so what the scripture is saying is, is when you see blood, actually what's represented there is life. Life. Somebody's life. Life of the body is in the blood. I've given you the blood on the altar to purify. Okay? So there's a distance. There's separation. I don't belong. I'm unloved. I feel like I'm on the outside. Shame. Guilty conscience. And the blood, the life of another person brings me together. Making you what? Well, there you go. Right with the Lord. Now I've entered into God's presence again. There it's all in a beautiful circle right here in this one verse. It is the blood given. Now here's the word really important. Exchange. This is where one person, we keep saying this, one person who is a hero or a savior or a rescuer, however you want to put it, one person who may be, let's say, innocent, takes the place of a guilty person, tale of two cities, great piece of literature, Let's the guilty go free. The innocent takes steps in and says, I will take your charge. And in the tale of two cities, they suffered death. And we just keep saying that in life and in literature, we see this theme all over the place. And the reason we're calling this day the heart of the story is because you can't get away from it. You can't get away from this story in life or in literature. We just keep seeing it. And this is why it's the inescapable story. Jesus gave his life, his blood for us in exchange for ours. Ernest Gordon wrote a book, it's a true story, called uh, The Valley Through, uh, Through the Valley of the Kwai. Okay? And it, it, they turned this into a movie about a decade ago. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland was in it. In it. Uh, to End All Wars, it was called. It was about a group of POWs in World War II who were building a railroad. And they suffered greatly problems. And you can imagine in a place where there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of scarcity, when that happens, you become very selfish and very self-centered. It's just natural. It's a natural human instinct. He tells a story one day about a shovel as they're coming back from the work camp, building, as they're coming back from building the railroad, going back to the work camp, a shovel's missing and the guard is very upset. I'll read to you, quote, striding up and down, the guard ranted and raved, working himself into a fury. Screaming in broken English, he demanded that the guilty one step forward to take his punishment. No one moved. The guards raged 
rage reached new heights of violence. Then all die, all die, he shrieked. And to show that he meant business, he cocked his rifle, put it to his shoulder, aimed at the first man in the rank, prepared to shoot and work his way down the line. At that moment, a soldier from the Argyle Regiment stepped forward, stood stiffly to attention and said calmly, I did it. I did it. The guard unleashed all of his whipped up hate, kicking the helpless prisoner and beating him with his fist. Still, the Argyle stood rigidly to attention, chin up, though now his blood was streaming all down his face. His calm silence seemed to goad the guard into greater rage. Seizing his rifle by the barrel, the guard lifted it high over his head and brought it down on the skull of the Argyle, who sank limply to the ground and never moved again. And though it was perfectly clear he was dead, the guard continued to beat him and stopped only when he was exhausted. The men of the work detail picked up their comrade's body, marched back to camp, and when the tools were counted again at the guardhouse, it turned out that no shovel was missing. He saved them by his blood. He gave his life, an innocent man, to save them. And you know what? If you read the story, if you'll read the book, you'll see that in a situation where there's a lot of fear and there's scarcity and the natural human reactions become selfish, which would take place, and there's a lot of theft in a POW camp, that they became selfless. They started loving and caring for each other at at, at new heights because this deeply moved them that somebody, an innocent man, would freely give his life. It is the great story of the Bible. The Bible is only about one story, and that is why it moves us so deeply, and it changes us. It moves us. It's an amazing story. Our soul's desire are to be in the presence of God, and God gives us a way to be made right with God once again. We have been saying the book of Leviticus is about five protocols, We call them protocols, process, procedures. You want to get in to see the king? You want to get in to see the president of the United States down at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? You just don't show up and say, I'm here. There is a process, a protocol. That's what these five are about. We're on number four today. And the fourth one is this. The hatat sacrifice tells me how to de-shame myself. It tells me how I can now no longer feel unfit for God's presence, but how I can enter into God's presence without feeling that sense of being unworthy or unloved. I can enter into God's presence. Hatat is the word for sin. Sin, that's a word that bothers us a lot. Don't call me a sinner. We get very, and rightly so, because a lot of people are running around telling everybody else they never seem to tell themselves they're a sinner, but they love to tell everybody else they're a sinner, and it bothers us greatly. But this word is simply a word from archery. It means to miss the mark. You missed the bullseye. Nobody's perfect. We all miss the bullseye. That's what this is about. And the key to this one is to confess. The key to all this is actually speaking it with your mouth. So you would come in. You've got your animal there. You lay your hand on the head of the animal, innocent animal. And you would confess. It's a one of great vulnerability, everybody. You confess right before the priest. Not just general sin. You just don't say, hi, my name's John, I'm a jerk, right? Everybody already knows that. The priest would say, tell us something we don't know. You would actually specifically say, you know what? I'm confessing that I did X, Y, and Z. 
I'm laying my hand on the animal. The animal, the reason my hand's on the animal is this animal, this innocent animal is going to take my place. Now, they knew the animal wasn't going to cleanse on their sin. God kept telling the same story over and over to get to the Hebrews chapter 9 that we just read, ultimate sacrifice that actually takes away our sins, and that's Jesus Christ. So that's really what it's all about. But the key here is to confess it, to actually speak it out. It's a moment of great vulnerability and something that we don't like to do. Actually, it's something that we might be offended that somebody will say, you know, why are you telling me I have to confess? How dare you tell me that? You confess. We get mad about this. But this is about speaking it out to other people in a moment of great vulnerability. I'd like to share uh, two things here about blood, mainly, suffering, about the heart of this story. And the first one is this. Our shame is both deep and dangerous. Okay? We don't have a skin-deep problem. We have a blood-deep problem. It goes all the way to the heart of ourselves. It's deep. And surface issues are not going to solve our problem. It's got to go deep. If it was a surface issue, we could just say, oh, okay, well, there doesn't need to be hurt and pain and suffering. We don't, God doesn't need to provide for us a blood salvation. It's a skin-deep issue. But it's not a skin-deep problem that we have. We have a very deep, deep problem, and that's why it goes all the way to our, to our blood. Education. Let's talk about three big things. Education. Everybody, uh, I love education. I'm all for education. I would love to learn. I go visit my son at college, and I say to myself, you know, I wish I could just stay here and do nothing the rest of my life but be a student and just learn, learn. I just love it now. Now, I didn't love it when I was 20 years old. I mean, this is so weird. Why is this? I mean, I didn't want to be there when I was 20. I just wanted to play basketball on the basketball team when I was 20. But now all I want to do is be a student. I mean, if we could just flip that somehow, we would just be okay. But I'd love to. So I, I need you to know, I love education. I think it's absolutely awesome. But if education is our answer, if Jesus Christ is this great teacher, and I just listen to his teachings, or just education in the world, we just need to educate people, and our problems are going to go away. Do you realize we have had an explosion of knowledge in the last 200 years? An absolute explosion of knowledge and that explosion of knowledge should have imploded our problems and yet our problems are still here even though our knowledge has gone up exponentially in the last 200 years our our, our problems haven't gone away education is a skin deep education is wonderful but it's a skin deep skin deep issue our issue is blood deep second thing money we just need more money well that's good i like that but all the studies show that money won't take away our problems. The United States of America is the richest nation in the history of the world. And we've got all kinds of issues and problems, right? This country that we're in is just filled with all kinds of frustration and depression and deeply divisive issues. Money's not the answer. We're, we're it. You're the top of the Amway pyramid. This is it. Instill the problems. So education won't do it. Money won't do it. How about moral reformation? Well, you're in the right place, man. That's what the church is all about. It's about moral reformation. All right, I'm going to say something that might seem a little strange. Moral reformation isn't the answer. Moral reformation is a skim-deep problem, and that's according to Jesus Christ. I'm all for people being better people and having lots of morals. I think it's great, and I think Jesus is all for it too. But he tells us very clearly in the Scriptures that that is a skin-deep thing. And he says it by saying this, if you're moral reforming and think that somehow you're going to be fit for God's presence because you're being a good goody-two-shoe person and going to church and praying and doing all that kind of good stuff, he says, what you're actually doing is cleaning the outside of the cup. Anybody remember that? If you read this, you read, read it. You'll read Jesus says it. You're cleaning the outside of the cup and the inside of the cup needs to be cleaned. That's a blood-deep issue, not a skin-deep issue. 
So that won't do it. So this is why we've got to go very, very, very deep in this. Our story is this. The consistent story. You read Genesis. You start reading. They're in paradise. They're in God's presence. They're where their soul longs to be and then cut off because of a decision that they made. We can't get away from this story. A decision they make and the first thing they feel is deep shame. They feel a sense, intense sense of pain, of shame. What is shame? They feel like they can't be in, they're unfit for somebody's presence. They're unfit to be loved, and so they go into hiding. That's exactly what they do. So all the, be- all the way to the beginning of the book, everybody, I'm going to come back to this in a second, so track with me. In Genesis, at the very beginning, the first thing, the first problem they have is with shame, and they hide from each other. Adam and Eve hide from each other, and they hide from God. Shame. They go into hiding. Hiding. They have a guilty conscience. And then God. God actually does the first sacrifice in the whole Bible. You realize that? God makes the first sacrifice. He sacrifices an animal. He sheds the animal's blood. An innocent animal. An innocent animal. God didn't want to do that. He didn't set the world up this way. You know, I realized recently that God set the world up as a vegetarian. I'm not a vegetarian. This is troubling me, so I'm trying to keep ambiguous about it and say I'm not really sure about if it's a sure because that's the way I can keep doing what I want to do. But I'm sorry if you read the text. This is the way it is, all right? We're not eating animals and blah, 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 and I don't want to go down this road, so I don't know why I am. But anyway, (laughs) God sheds the first blood, and he does it because they are in shame. And we're told very, very clearly he sheds blood, kills the animal to do what? To cover them so that they would now feel fit to be in each other's presence and in God's presence. It's a fabulous story. Is that the story? Is that the great story that God's telling and that life and literature is telling us? Think with me about this. Our culture, everybody, for the past probably four or five decades has been saying pretty resoundingly, don't put your shame on me. What our culture has been saying is, is that shame is contrived. It's contrived. That no, nobody can make you feel shame. You, you have to be willing to take that shame on. So when somebody says, well, what you're doing, you're, you shouldn't do that. Shame on you for doing that. That the only reason we feel shame is if we allow to take that on. We allow somebody to put their morals, to put us in their box. Don't tell me how to live, right? And so what's been said over probably the last four decades in a huge way is don't put your lifestyle on me. Don't put me in your box. Don't tell me, don't judge me. Don't shame on me. Don't send me, right? Don't do that to me. I want to live my own life. Now, let's stop. Let's take a time out. A lot of our frustration with that is valid and Jesus would agree with that. He'd say, you know what? Because his harshest criticism in scripture is Matthew 23 for a bunch of people who were going around judging and shaming people. And Jesus says, this is wrong. That's his harshest criticism though. So, 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 okay, I agree and I don't like it either. I'm sure you don't like it yourself. But let's not take the baby and throw the baby out. We can't say, okay, well, I'll just do whatever I want and I'm just going to feel shameless. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to do whatever I feel. I'm going to live whatever lifestyle I want to live, and everything's going to be okay. So if that is the case, if all shame is contrived, then what we should do is we should see shame going down like this on a scale. Are you with me? It's going to be important in just a second. If that is true, that shame is contrived, and you make your own decisions, like Adam and Eve, and they made their own decisions, then shame should be going down like this on a chart. 
But is that the case in our world? Let's look at look a picture, Myron. Okay. Anybody know who that is? Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Brene Brown. She's a rock star. Are you serious? No. I know you're joking. Brene Brown. Uh, huge TED. I mean, her TED Talks. They have like 7 million views on it. You go on, the, on TED, they'll say that Brene Brown is an absolute legend. She's famous. She's the foremost authority in the United States of America for the last more than decade on data. 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 Not ideas. Data through tons of interviews with people on shame. On shame. She's it. People love her. She's a rock star. Let's look at the next picture. Oprah loves her. Enough said. Right? Loves her. She's an absolute rock star. She studied shame. She's a best-selling author. She is it. Now, shame should be shame is contrived and it's going down like this. This is what the data shows. She says we are absolutely swimming in shame. She said our country is suffering an epidemic of shame. That can't be, everybody. Because it makes sense when you tell me that I can live any way I want, make my own decision, and feel shameless because it's what I want to do. And shame is only when I accept the shame you're putting on me because it's all contrived. I'll make my own decisions. My shame should be going down like this. And she said, instead of us swimming towards the shallow end of the shame pool, we're just going off the cliff deep, deep, deep into shame. And now all of a sudden, oh my gosh, are you serious? She says... That shame is lethal and deadly. And here, I want to quote her. Ready for this? What's the first thing Adam and Eve felt at the beginning of the story? At the very beginning of the story? Shame? Ready what she says? Shame is the most primitive human emotion we all feel and the one no one wants to talk about. Oh, my gosh. I'm talking to Krista about this this past week. (laughs) Are you serious? Maybe the book is really true. Maybe the Bible is actually true, everybody. Because all the data, the hard data keeps coming back and saying, oh, it, 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 there it is. Not people's opinion. Oh, man, do anything you want. You won't feel anything. It's going to be all okay. It's all okay. The data is coming back and saying, no, 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 no. The more we keep pushing that message out, the greater our shame is going up. It's the most primitive of human emotions, just like Genesis 3 says to us. She says, shame is highly correlated in addictions, depression... All the things I'm reading here is what America's going off the charts with. Shame is highly correlated to addictions, depression, violence, aggression, suicide, eating disorders, a variety of health issues, bullying. She is saying that shame is deep and dangerous, and that's why we need to go blood deep, not skin deep, to get rid of it. She says we're swimming in it. And that people who say they don't have it, this is what she says, have it worse than anybody else. People who don't talk about it say, I don't have shame. What are you talking about? She says, actually, in her data, in her interviews, she says, those are the very people who are off the charts with shame. Even those that say, I don't have it. And if we keep quiet about it, she says, it will creep into every corner and crevice of our lives. So what can we do about it? This is where it gets, this is where it gets phenomenally cool. Remember what I said a minute ago about this sacrifice, fourth protocol? How do you enter into God's presence once again? Hand on the head, confess. Nobody wants to do that. Vulnerability, confession. 
I'm confessing that I did X, Y, and Z. I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Who wants to do that? Don't tell me I got to do that. I'll do whatever I want. Confess it. Confess it. So here's it. She says there's two things to overcome shame. Number one, you have to, data, you have to confess it. She says shame cannot survive being spoken. Over a decade, the foremost authority on shame, the best-selling author, is saying exactly, confirming exactly what the Bible is saying, that shame cannot survive being spoken. You have to confess it. That's a decision all of us have to make. If we confess it, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all of our sin and all of our shame. That's what exactly she is saying here. Second thing, now this is something that we can't control. This is an outside thing. I can control whether or not I confess or not, but I can't control what somebody else does. So she says the next thing you need to overcome shame is this. Shame cannot survive empathy. She says, quote, empathy is the antidote to shame. It's the antidote. Let's look at the next picture. Tell me if you know who this person is. Go ahead. Come on. Monica Lewinsky. There's the title of her talk right there, The Price of Shame. She starts her talk, which is about 8 million TED Talk views. So it's not like a ton of people haven't seen her talk. She's broke her silence after a, after a decade of being quiet about this. And she starts it by saying, I want a show of hands. Who here did something foolish when they were 22 years old? <laughs> uh -huh. She said this in her talk, if it wasn't for empathy, I'd be dead. Our foremost authority on shame says this. Shame cannot survive empathy. Empathy is the antidote to shame. Now, what is empathy? Empathy is not the same thing as sympathy. Sympathy is I feel bad for you. Empathy is I crawl inside of your skin. I feel what you're feeling. I experience what you're, what you're experiencing. I identify it. I'm inside of your skin. That's empathy. That's empathy. And... Shame cannot survive that. Now, let's go to theology. Jesus Christ, many of us would say, you know what? Okay, I like Jesus. He's a really good teacher. I like some of the cool things he said, his forgiveness and his love and all that kind of stuff and fighting for the underdog. That's awesome. But he's not God, right? He's not God. And he, <laughs> he definitely wasn't born of a virgin, okay? Let's get serious for that. That seems ludicrous. The Bible says that Jesus Christ took on skin, and then he was tempted in every single way that you and I were tempted so that he could fully understand us. If you get rid of Jesus Christ in God Almighty in the skin, what you've done is just eliminated divine empathy. Off the table. And that's why that theology is so important. And that's how we get rid of our shame because Jesus Christ comes and takes on flesh and is able to empathize with us, an empathetic God to us, Deal with what, and then understands us. And then is the antidote to our shame, which is the most primitive human emotion of all. The Bible's only telling one story. Data is only confirming the story the Bible is telling over and over again. It's absolutely amazing. This is a blood-deep issue. Second and final point. Great love always, 100% of the time, Great love always, 100% of the times, involves making a great sacrifice. Always. I want to wave it off. Right? I believe in a God of great love. So, psh, let's just, we don't need this bloodshed. We don't need Jesus on the cross. I don't know about all this and him being God. Why can't, if he really loves me, why can't he say, hey, let's, done with it. Come on in. I forgive you. It's all good. It's all good. 
Why the bloodshed? I have a major problem with this. Why is this required? I want us to think about this for just a second, all right? This statement is made by a lot of people. A lot of pe- many people make this statement because over 90% of people believe in God. I say, I just believe in a God of great love who loves and accepts everybody. Has anybody ever heard something like that before? Anybody? Could you show me your hands if anybody's ever... I believe in a God of love who loves and accepts everybody. Okay. Where's your empirical evidence for that? We're a data-driven, scientific culture, so let's just go for it. Where's your data for that? Is this your opinion? Can you show me some evidence? Give me, give me, give, give me something. Give me hard facts. Why is that true? You have this belief. Are you just giving me a belief out of your opinion that's not founded in any empirical evidence whatsoever? Are you going to give me some evidence behind back your belief up to me, please? So the Bible says that Jesus Christ suffers and he dies for us. Great love, 100% of the time, always involves a great sacrifice. I'm thinking about writing a movie. And uh, my vision for this movie script, everybody is at the end of the movie, both men and women will be just absolute tears when the movie's over, right? I want to just give you my bullet point outline for the movie. Uh, I just want to run it by you. Is that okay? Yeah. So I'm thinking about doing this movie. You've got a guy and a girl. You know, you kind of catch up with them when they're younger. They don't know each other, right? Guy and girl, two different families. Uh, both of them, um, very wealthy families. Uh, they go to private schools. You know, uh, they get fancy cars when they turn 16, BMWs and... Mercedes and all this kind of good stuff is just great. They meet each other in college. Their chemistry is awesome. They're two very beautiful people, beautiful people. And they decide after a number of years to, to get married. And there's no turmoil in their relationship whatsoever. It's absolutely awesome. They have a gorgeous wedding. And the final scene, everybody, here's the final scene. They're just romping the beaches of Bali. End of movie. I think it'll work. I think people will be deeply moved to tears by that. I have another story that I'm working with. I don't think it'll work, but I still like to share it with you because I want some feedback. I had this idea about this man and this woman. They meet each other, you know, kind of late teens area, right? And they're not, they don't have a ton of money. You know, it's not like the fun stuff, like the first story. They're not rock star good looking with rock star money and all that kind of stuff. Very rocky. I mean, they have a lot of chemistry, but then they also have a lot of, you know what I'm saying? Some of you do, but... uh, yeah, they really, they go at it. And, and then after they decide, like, they're going to move the relationship forward, like, the family gets involved, you know what I mean, and tries to split them apart. And, man, they do split apart. It's terrible. It's terrible. They yell and scream and fight, and it's just, they go on years and years and years, this goes on. Finally, after years of nothing but struggle and problem, they get married. They get married. They have kids. They live their life. And now in their older years, in their older years, right, they're like in their late 60s or something, uh, the wife gets Alzheimer's. And she has to go live in this nursing home. And he decides to go live in this place. She doesn't even know, doesn't even know who he is. And it's really depressing and his mind is sharp, right? His mind is sharp. He's with it. And the kids come, they're full-grown kids now. They come and visit. They say, Dad, why are you sacrificing your life? She doesn't even know you. This place is depressing. Travel the world. Enjoy it. Live your life. Quit sacrificing your life. And then there's times when he goes to see her, 
Sometimes she'll recognize him for just a moment, but then all of a sudden she'll be afraid of him because she doesn't know who he is and she'll scream and she'll yell and she'll push him away and it's terrible. She gets so mad and angry. But he refuses to leave. He refuses to leave. One night, he goes into her room very quietly and gets in her bed and they fall asleep. And she dies of a broken mind, and he dies of a broken heart. I'm thinking about calling it the notebook. (laughs) I have a hunch that it'll be the greatest love story ever put on film. Because I want to tell you this, 100% of the time, great love Always great sex, 100%. Mm-mm. You, can't, you can't, can't do this. You cannot do this. You can't say, hey, the way all of our evidence for love is because of great sacrifice. But you know what? When it comes to God, we're going to just wipe all that away. And we're just going to say no sacrifice. We're just going to run through the flowers together. <laughs> it's all good. You know, I'm going to put God in a toilet. No, 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 can't do that. You can't do that. You can't give your whole world and looking at evidence and say it's all about sacrifice, that's what great love is, and all of a sudden come to God and say, ah, no, ah, forget all that stuff. That does not work. It's life for life. It's blood for blood. I have one last point, and then we're going to watch a video clip, okay, everybody? I want you to think with me for one second. Somebody has wronged you. I don't want you to think about it too long. I want you to think about it just long enough that your blood starts to boil, and then I want you to back down. Okay, so just let it get up. I mean, somebody's wronged you, right? When somebody wrongs you, that means somebody has to pay. This is, this, is, this is just true. This is just fact. So somebody wrongs me, I have a decision to make if I've been wronged. Either they're going to pay or I'm going to pay. But somebody's going to pay. Somebody's going to suffer wrath, right? Simple stuff. I get cut off on the highway, right? I make a decision. Either I'm going to say, oh, it's okay. Oh, it makes me upset, but ah. Or I flip on the bird right? I do, or I yell and I scream and I do something, right? So somebody does you wrong, they pay, you get bitter, you get angry, you call them names, you gossip about them, you do whatever, but they're going to pay because you're angry. It's the easy way. That's why I like to choose that way most of the time, right? To be honest with you. But if I pay, if I take out, if that debt, if I absorb that debt, if I take that wrath on me, the reason I don't do it much of the time is because it hurts. I suffer. Somebody does me wrong, gosh, I forgive them, and I just, I don't say all the mean things, and I don't gossip, and I don't give them the cold shoulder. I forgive them, and I I love them, and it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. Somebody has to pay. That's the way life works. We uh, have made decisions. None of us are perfect, and uh, we have wronged God. We have made decisions to go off on our own. And now God has a decision to make. He has a decision. Who's going to pay? Well, here's here's what religion has told us for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of centuries. That when you wrong the gods, the gods require your blood to appease them. That makes sense. That just makes sense, everybody. Except in this story, the greatest of all stories, what you find is an innocent God, Jesus Christ, who says, instead of taking my wrath out on the guilty, instead of my taking my wrath out on you, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take all that wrath out on myself because there has to be a payment. 
and it's going to hurt me very deeply. But because I love you so greatly, I'm going to sacrifice so much and I'm going to take it on myself. And I'm going to remove your shame so that now you feel fit to be in my presence. I want to show you a video clip, and this is why we have the warning signs up. It's not graphic, but it's very compelling. It's about a father and a son and what a father does to save the lives of many people. Let's roll the clip. Uh, the story says that God loved us so much that he gave his son for us. That's the heart of the story. You see the people sitting on the train. They had no idea. Living their life. I find that Either I don't know about the story or I'm really confused about what the heart of the story really is. But there's the story. A father loved so much that an innocent God, Jesus Christ, takes all of his wrath out on himself and suffers in our place so that we can go free, free, free of sin and shame. That's God's great love and that's the very heart of the story. And if you allow that story to seep into your heart, you'll find by the power of the divine, it will change us from the inside out, not the outside in. We would have to turn off miles of evidence through life and literature to ignore that great story. We'll take a moment here and just, in our seats, contemplate for just a moment and uh, sing this song about God's great love. If you want to sing, you can. If you just want to be quiet, you can. The story says that if we confess him as Lord of our lives, Jesus Christ, that we will be saved. I would imagine anytime we talk about the heart of the story and we just peel away all the other stuff that doesn't need to be there, God seems to show up and do something powerfully in a place that just talks about the heart of the story. And I bet there's some of us here now that your heart is moved. And you're like, I want to do that. And I want to encourage you, don't walk away from this moment. Confess Christ as Lord. Be saved. End the shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you, Lord, for this amazing story that we cannot get away from. Every time we turn a corner, there it is. The story that an innocent person takes the guilt of someone else. God, we thank you for your amazing and great love for us. Let us be immersed in your presence as we confess you, Jesus, as Lord. And we take on your clean record and you take ours. Bless each one of us, God. In your holy name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.